Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our Bible study series on the book of Romans. Now, since it has been about two weeks, unfortunately, since we've had an installment in this series, um, just a quick reminder, here's why we're taking so long. We're going verse by verse through the entirety of the book of Romans. Why? Because it is the closest thing in Holy Scripture that you can get to a systematic theology textbook. Now, by systematic theology, at least in Protestant circles, what I mean by that is gathering biblical data to formulate doctrine. It's a little bit different than dogmatics. Dogmatics is, what does the word say? Therefore, we say it. This is Christian doctrine. This is what Christians believe. But systematic theology goes, okay, let's do a methodology here that helps us to back up everything we say. Um, With that, a a good example of that would be uh, showing that Jesus Christ is God. Well, is Jesus Christ God? Well, we look at John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And then we look at John chapter 1 uh, later on where that Word, that Logos, is identified as Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. We look at uh, all sorts of passages where Jesus gives the I am statements when he uh, speaks to the Pharisees and the uh, the high priest there saying, you will see the Son of Man coming down in the clouds, which is a callback to Daniel, in which the Son of Man is the Son of God, is God coming down in the clouds. He's telling the Pharisees, uh, yeah, you know that I'm God. That's what he's saying. We, we collect all these passages together and we go, the Bible is teaching that Jesus is God, therefore that is our doctrine. Romans is the closest thing in the Bible that you have to somebody doing that for us. St. Paul here writing to the Roman church in order to present his case, answer some questions that the Roman church had, and to settle some of the disputes between the Gentile and Jewish Christians in that congregation in the first century. And with that... We're going to go here to Romans chapter 3 to continue our study. And uh, real quick beforehand, if you hear some stopping and going, some clicking, some pausing, I am doing laundry today while working on ministry stuff. So uh, bear with me. We're going to try to keep it as professional as possible. But let's face it, you don't come here for, uh, you know, PhD level three hour lectures. Nope, this is slap, dash, cut and burn. Awesome biblical theology that we are doing here. So, with that said, let's go ahead and read the first eight verses of Romans chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. 
For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. On the face of it, those eight verses make absolutely no sense. St. Paul is doing a scattershot, blunderbuss explosion of points and directions here that unless we read carefully, we will have no clue what he's saying. <laughs> Just being honest, St. Paul has a habit in the book of Romans and in other books like First and Second Corinthians of referring really quickly back to a previous passage that he wrote and then anticipating one in the future that he's going to write and tying them together in this way so that we understand the flow of what he's doing. But as St. Peter says in Second Peter, I believe, chapter 3, his words are hard to understand. You do have to sit down and parse it out and really understand what he's talking about. So we start again, we'll, we'll reread it slowly and comment on each verse here. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And he answers with much in every way. Now, one of the reasons he, he starts asking these questions and answering them in this passage is because it sounds like he just contradicted himself. In chapter 2, if we rewind, look at the immediate context. In uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 25, he says, uh, Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart." By the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So St. Paul, when he starts chapter 3, and you know he didn't write chapters into this. The, the chapter and verse structure was added in the 15th century. But St. Paul recognizes that he just said, your circumcision doesn't really matter uh, unless you are a perfect law-obeying person. And even then, if you were a perfect law-obeying person, it wouldn't matter that you were uncircumcised because God would take a look at you in your perfect behavior, your obedience to his law, and go, oh, well, yeah, it doesn't matter that he's not circumcised. So his readers in the Roman church are probably very confused at this point because they also just heard him say, and uh, in Romans chapter 2, earlier, he says in verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. So his audience here in the Roman church with this conflict, these arguments between Jews and Gentiles, 
he's it sounds like he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth oh for the jew first yes absolutely there's there's this advantage that the jew has but then by the way a lot of this stuff doesn't mean anything so he clarifies in romans 3 starting in verses 1 and 2 here what advantage has the jew because he he has to explain why he said for the jew first and then also for the greek and he has to explain well why why is circumcision even something <laughs> if it's if it doesn't honestly matter in light of our sins so he answers much in every way to begin with the jews were entrusted with the oracles of god now a little bit on the term jew and how he uses it he does not mean Jew in terms of, well, modern Jewry. He's not thinking of Jew as um, a member of the tribe of Judah or a religiously observant Orthodox rabbi. He's not thinking the way we think of Jews today. How do we know this? Because later on in Romans 3, he talks about, quote unquote, we Jews, but... In Philippians, he refers to himself as a Benjaminite, or a Benjamite. He is from the tribe of Benjamin, not Judah. So it's a little bit more of a fuzzy word than it, than it is today. Um, it's more of a geographic designation, or sometimes as a catch-all term for the children of Israel. Other times, the Roman government said, uh, yeah, you know what, we're going to call Herod the Edomian, the guy that's actually an Edomite, we're going to call him a Jewish king as we set him over the people in Judea. It's confusing. <laughs> but here he does talk about the Jews as a catch-all term for Israelite, Hebrew, somebody from the 12 tribes of Israel regardless of their tribe. So he's saying the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That is an advantage to them. How? Because if you had the Bible in the first century AD, then when somebody comes to witness to you, you should be able to understand, oh yes, these prophecies are all related to this Jesus Christ person that this person is telling me about. And in the context of the law, the Jew should have the advantage in the first century AD because he's read the law. He understands the Ten Commandments. He understands God's holy morality ethics, as it were, for him to do. So that is supposed to be an advantage. That is an advantage. Everybody else, as Romans 2.15 speaks, says that everybody, all the Gentiles, have the law written in their hearts, but not in their heads, not in their ears at that time. The Bible wasn't everywhere for people to read and understand as we have today. So, when we get into that, yes, they have an advantage. And there's also a value to circumcision. Why? Because circumcision was the covenant entry into God's people. In the Old Testament. It has been, and St. Paul speaks about this in Colossians, it has been replaced with holy baptism. But in that time, if you were circumcised as a member of Israel, that puts you in God's covenant, his people, that meant that you were raised in such a fashion 
that you were going to be catechized into the law. It meant that you were going to understand the history and the prophecy. You were going to understand all of these things. So while circumcision is often used as a placeholder for a word like Jew, because they were all circumcised, all the males anyway, here he's talking about it in terms of, yes, if you have the Bible and you were raised in the covenant community of God, to borrow a term from the Calvinists, if you were part of the church before the church was explicitly Christian, you have every, every single advantage to understand the law. But now he also has to continue specifying, clarifying himself. In verse 3 he says, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? He is anticipating somebody saying, Well, okay, you have the covenant of circumcision given to Abraham in the book of Genesis. But you have also all these promises to God. But wait, the law, you just said in verses 25 through 29 of chapter 2, you just said that, like, I am judged based on my deeds here. And that means that I, I, everybody knows Deuteronomy 28 has all these curses for it. And you're saying that that would apply to me. And I wouldn't even be counted as part of God's people because you just said, um, if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. I'm, I'm kicked out of God's people for breaking the law? Well, that means that the promises of God are meaningless because they, they're never applied to me. God can just willy-nilly say, oh, you sinned and you're not part of my people anymore. So people are looking at this and they're getting worried that you cannot trust God's promises, at least the contingent ones, based on your sin, your, your behavior. St. Paul has just trapped everybody under the horrible but terrifying reality that all of us are under sin and said, yeah, that means that you're not part of the covenant community. Your circumcision doesn't count. You're not special by your race. Uh, you're hosed, bro. <laughs> and that starts scaring people and making them wonder, can God be trusted then? If God can't be trusted, he's not worth worshiping. And St. Paul answers that. He asks, what if some were unfaithful? Of course, that's hypothetical. Everybody, because of our sin, has been unfaithful. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Meaning, is it because of my sin that none of God's promises count towards me? If that's the case, why even worship him? So St. Paul answers with a firm underline, put that in bold and italics, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So St. Paul says, no, God is still absolutely faithful, even if you are unfaithful. It is not God's fault that through your sins, your special status as a circumcised member of some tribe of Israel doesn't count for anything. And he goes so far as to start, and again, this is a little bit of systematic theology here. He quotes Psalm 51. So let's turn there real quick, and we're going to read the first few verses. Um, it's going to sound different because St. Paul is probably using the Septuagint translation while the, uh, your standard ESV or NASB is going to be using stuff like the Masoretic text, the Vulgate, and others. 
But let's go ahead and read these first four verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. St. Paul expects you to be a student of scripture that understands that reference. It's not an accident that he brings up Psalm 51. David, the king that wrote this, he writes this after he was uh, excoriated by Nathan the prophet for his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah the Hittite. And David here gives us a little bit of a hint as to where St. Paul is going with this. David goes, I sinned against you. I messed up. I wickedly sinned against you. Have mercy on me. I have no right to claim anything special by my righteousness, by my power, by anything. I ask for your mercy. So how do we square this circle? If my sins would theoretically nullify the promises of God, his faithfulness, because nobody can attain them, uh, what is a promise worth if you automatically automatically disqualify yourself by just being a sinful human being, then how is God's promises? How are his promises fulfilled and realized in humans that don't deserve them? Well, it's by God's mercy, in spite of our unworthiness. And David understands that by begging for mercy and asking God to blot out his sins and transgressions. But when St. Paul says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged, you know, King David gives us a little bit of a hint as to where St. Paul is going with this. But here, it's saying that God is justified in his judgment. He is justified to do whatever he wants with us because we are sinners. He is not. Nobody can say to God, your judgment is unfair. Nobody can say to God, you got it wrong. There must have been some sort of mistake. I mean, the entire book of Job tells us more or less that, look, you can plead your case all you want, but God is right. And 99% of the time, you are wrong. And the only 1% of the time that you're right is when you're agreeing with God for once. So, in uh, kind of explaining himself here, in verse 5, he says, If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. Again, verse 4 here, he's saying the meaning of what he's getting at. Our sin shows God's righteousness. But, verse 5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteous, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. I mean, he's very careful to say, listen, this ain't me saying this. This ain't me asking that question because that would be 
blasphemous, that would be judging God or testing him. But the question is a something of a legitimate one, even if it's unrighteous to ask it. You're saying the person here that he's bringing up as a hypothetical would be asking, well, hey, wait, 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 wait. My sin shows that God is righteous and just. So if that's the case, then why is God judging me? If it shows him to be all powerful and righteous and I have no choice but to sin anyway, if that's just going to be in me, well, then goodness gracious, how could God possibly judge me? It's not fair. <laughs> There's like this hidden it's not fair that St. Paul is addressing here. And St. Paul crassly, frankly, he says, by no means, he's not unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. For then how could God judge the world? Now, what does he mean by that when he asks, for then how could God judge the world? It's like this. God is good. He is the omnipotent, almighty, omnipotent God of the universe. The omniscient being that knows all truth, including all moral truth. He is the source of all good. That doesn't mean anything if you, having an oopsie in sinning, lying to your mom or stealing a candy bar, or if you do something ex really wicked, wicked, like um, killing your neighbor's cat or stealing a car or uh, committing adultery or something, God being the source of all good means nothing if he is not the judge. So he says, by no means, it is not unrighteous for God to inflict wrath on you because it's your sin. And God being the source of all good and the omnipotent being that created everything has not only every right, but will honestly judge the world. And he's going to do it somehow. He's not going to say, oh, I can't. Oh, man, that guy shot up a school. Oh, goodness. Got to let him get away with it because, I mean, everybody's just sold under sin. And it'd be, it'd be mean and unfair of me to judge him and inflict wrath on him. <laughs> are you tracking? Are you, are you hearing what I'm saying here? St. Paul is saying, okay, yes, God is faithful in spite of both Jews and Gentiles being sold under sin. And yes, he is still faithful even if we are not. And as an aside here, bringing to mind Psalm 51, kind of whispering in your ear, that means you should do what King David does and ask for mercy. But again, as he goes in verse 5 here, uh, it's not unfair for God to judge people like this because he's, he's God. He is going to judge the world, and if you're saying he's not allowed to for some reason because of your inability to control yourself, well then, there's no point in seeing God as existing in the first place. Go or, or gosh, be a deist if you think God isn't allowed to be involved in his world with the people that he created. So, in verse 7, though, he anticipates yet further... Uh, issues that people would have. He's in beforeing all the questions they would ask. Uh, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may uh, 
that good may come. Now, he apparently people were accusing him of this, what's called antinomianism, because he says, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So the, the questions he's in before and that he almost offhand dismisses here, if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? He's saying, well, um, this hypothetical question here is like, well, if God's glory, if he's shown to be righteous, isn't it good that I sin? <laughs> why, why not do bad stuff that good stuff happens? He's, like I said, he does like to foreshadow a little bit of what he's going to be talking about in later chapters, connecting what he's just now bringing up to what he will be explaining later. As we get to chapter six and seven, he's going to be explaining why we as Christians cannot be antinomianists. Now, what is antinomianism? Antinomianism literally means uh, against the law-ism, anti-law theology. The idea being that, well, if Jesus died for my sins, and if I'm forgiven of all my sins, I should be able to just do whatever the heck I want, right? Uh, to my shame, I admit, at some point when I was a dumb teenager, I thought along those lines. But at the end of the day, the answer is no. Because God saved you for a reason. And one of those big, huge reasons is being his workmanship for righteousness, as we uh, discussed earlier in the other chapters about the new obedience. And it, it's interesting that St. Paul would just kind of end this section, this passage with that, and then change the subject. But that's a hint to us that he's going to get back to it later. So we're going to go ahead and table that with just a little bit of a thing here that, again, you were made for good works as a Christian. That's a huge point. You were a sinner, bound for death, bound for hell, and Jesus, by his blood, paid for all of your sins, but it was not so that you could just go keep on sinning. There's a sanctification element of it. Your eternal life in Christ is not going to be marked by you sinning for all of eternity. Because otherwise you would deserve hell. If you want eternal damnation and sin, living in the sins that you decided to keep for yourself, I mean, don't. <laughs> but that's a, we're going to get to more of that later. But he changes the subject again. And in verse 9, he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now this honestly properly should be the tail end of a chiasm here. Because he starts chapter 3 saying, what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision, much in every way, but then he systematically demonstrates why, yes, you have an advantage, but it doesn't matter. You've squandered it. Because, as he says, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written... We're going to read these quotes. These are all from various psalms. These are all other verses that he's collected for this aspect of systematic theology. None is righteous. No, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, he's going and he's citing Psalm 14. He's citing Psalm uh, 10. He's citing all these psalms. And he could have picked other verses that demonstrate our general sinfulness, but I think... And I would wager that he picked these particular psalm references to make sure that nobody gets away with, oh, well, that's not me. <laughs> he, again, he says he's charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So when he says, obviously, a blanket umbrella statement, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So, okay, everybody's under sin. And just in case somebody says, well, that's not me. I am very careful to tithe all my mint and rue and cumin, and I, I make sure to do all the sacrifices. Well, in verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Oh, well, you think your sins are just something you do with your hands and your feet, sir? You think it's just sins of omission that you're avoiding here? That you're, you're perfectly fine because you're obeying the Levitical laws? Well, have I got a, a thing for you to tell you? Well, what's your mouth saying? Come on. You know that you've told lies. You know that the pride coming out of your lips is a sin. And then he continues, Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. So, look, pal, in case you're like, Oh no, my, my tongue is pure. I am a special individual. I don't say anything bad. Oh yeah? Well, how about all those times that you joined in on punishing somebody? You know, even when you were a little kid, you're hitting your mom. Yeah, that counts. And it doesn't matter that you think you're fine. You're not. And the fact that you're not worried, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That verse also condemns you. You're up a creek without a paddle. And he's bringing all this scripture in to back up his case. St. Paul, the, the church's first theologian here, is saying, I'm not just saying this. The Bible backs me up. Now, of course, St. Paul is writing Holy Scripture, as St. Peter declares in 2 Peter, but he is, at the same time, making sure that he's not writing in a vacuum. It's not just him saying stuff, and he's not just claiming special revelation, although as an apostle of Almighty God, he has every right to do that. He is still saying and showing that nothing he's saying is new. The Bible already explains this and shows this in the Old Testament. Now, because he addresses in verse 9, he says, Are we Jews any better off? In verse 19, 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And this is a little bit of a callback back to chapter 2 when he said, listen, the, the Gentiles out there, if they sin, they're still judged, even if they're ignorant of the law. They still die. But they're not under the law in terms of circumcision, in terms of standing and renewing the covenant at uh, Mount Gerizim and Mount uh, Nabal, I believe. Um, he, no, they're not there. And it is true, he says, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, i.e. the Israelites. But then he explains, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. He says all of that just means that you are without excuse. Yes, the Gentiles are judged for their wickedness. But you are also judged, O Jews, for your wickedness because you have the oracles of God. This way, zero people, whether ignorant or in the know, are held innocent. Period. And he gets to his big point here. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now he says, uh, no human being in the Greek, that's uh, sarks, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So he includes the Gentiles in this. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And here's where we get into a little bit of controversy. Because we Protestants, we look at that and we go... Yes, this is true. I cannot do anything to save myself or be justified by God. The word for justification coming from the Greek word dikaiwo, which means to declare right or declare righteous. And then all of our Roman Catholic friends and all of our Eastern Orthodox friends go, <clears throat> Sorry, Prot, have you ever heard of the book of James? And I hope I only have to address this once. In this series, St. Paul says no one is justified by works of the law, whether Jew or Gentile, even if it's a Gentile accidentally or despite his ignorance doing the right thing, or if it is a Jew who is careful to follow the Torah, nobody is justified by the works of the law because we're sinners, you see. However, we see that that negates every possibility of justification except for faith. So, the Roman Catholic replies, haven't you read James? St. James writes in James 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. <laughs> Shake in your boots, Prot. Catholics 1, Protestants 0. Here's the thing. Dikaiowo as a term does mean to declare righteous. St. Paul uses it in a legal forensic sense. Meaning, he is saying declared righteous, declared innocent in a court of law scenario here, in which you are either found innocent or found guilty. St. James is not using that term that way. In fact, in other instances of scripture, it is used, like St. James here, as a term for vindication. St. James brings this up, and I, I like the way that Hans Fien of Lutheran satire puts it. It's between people. 
human beings, other believers. One guy says he has faith, another guy says he has faith, and but he also has the works to uh, justify himself as saying he has faith. In uh, James 2 verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Meaning, oh great, you have all this faith, but I'm not seeing the fruit of that faith, what you were made for. I'm not seeing the new obedience that's supposed to be coming from that faith. What does that count towards you? Why should I consider you my Christian brother if you're not living the Christian life? Now, it cannot mean a forensic sense because, well, otherwise St. James is saying that we have to be saved by our works. Now, first off, if we are justified by faith plus works, we are just justified by works. I'll get into that. But there's another thing I have to bring up here. If you want to say that justification is always in the legal forensic sense, you have to be a Gnostic. In uh, Matthew chapter 11, well, what does Jesus say? The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Um Wisdom is justified by her deeds? If wisdom, which is a concept, which is a virtue, which is something you either have or you don't, if wisdom itself is legally declared innocent before God Almighty, that means that at some point wisdom had to earn it, which means wisdom is a person which means you are now a Valentinian Gnostic that believes that Most Holy Sophia, the chief of the Ions, made an oopsie creating the material world and had to be justified by her work in spreading the, uh, the seed of divinity in mankind to allow them to achieve enlightenment. Yes, that does actually logically follow from saying that wisdom had to be justified by her deeds. Now, if dekaiwo here is being used in terms of vindication, then no, you don't require wisdom to be a person. This is more poetic of wisdom to be uh, vindicated, meaning right thinking vindicated by right deeds. I mean, that's, that's just the case. But furthermore, St. James has to be referring to vindication because Justification by faith plus works is justification by works alone. Here's how that works. Are you going to fly in a plane that has a 100% chance of taking off, 100% chance of making its flight, and 100% chance of landing safely? Or are you going to take the plane that is 99% reliable but has a 1% part of it, one, one component that always fails. Are you going to take those chances? And I'm talking a component that if it fails, everybody dies. That is the faith plus works formulation. You are a sinful human being. Yes, you are regenerated in your baptism, but as Romans chapter 7 and other places in scripture demonstrate, you're still a sinner. 
uh, St. John in 1 John chapter 1 makes that plain. If we say we have no sin, we are liars. <laughs> so you are in the justification airplane. If it relies on you, you are a part that is guaranteed to fail. And everybody understands that a sin, even in St. James's understanding in James chapter 1 of sin, even the smallest sin grows and when is fully grown gives birth to, to death. You die because of sin. Even spiritually, you can be damned because of your sin. If justification relied on you even a little bit, and if, if you know, if you're damned if you don't do the right stuff in your part of justification, then that means it all hinges on you. You can say that Jesus did 99.999% of the work and you did only that 0.0001% of the work in justification and earning your way to heaven and meriting your salvation. But that just means that because it is now on you whether or not everything Jesus did for you counts, you're host, you're damned. And it all relied on you. That's faith plus works justification. Now, the Eastern Orthodox, I've heard Eastern Orthodox theologians say, well, uh, no, St. Paul is saying by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. He's, he's not talking about uh, the Ten Commandments. He's not talking about the, the law that actually does apply to Christians. He's talking about the ceremonial law. He's talking about the Deuteronomic civic law. He's talking about all those things which have been fulfilled in Christ. And you really do still need to be doing these good works as a part of your attack to justification by theosis or something similar to that extent. I've heard different theologians in the Eastern Orthodox Church say different things, but generally speaking, they reject sola fide in part because they believe that it leads to antinomianism and in part because they believe that, well, St. Paul is just speaking about, well, various laws in the Mosaic Covenant. Problem with that is that St. Paul later on will, as an example of what the law says, the same law that does not justify, he will be bringing up, thou shalt not steal. He will bring up the Ten Commandments. And if he's bringing up the Ten Commandments, that means that no, even the big capital E, ethics, here factors in. We cannot be righteous by ourselves. But obviously different Eastern Orthodox theologians are going to think different things here. So I don't want to make a blanket statement. Just keep in mind, you cannot be justified by your works. If your works play any part of your justification, you're damned. That's as stark as St. Paul puts it. And with that, we will get to the good news next week, everybody. Uh, here he's going to change gears and get into the, the good news after having spent this much time, well, five sessions now, just beating us over the head with the, the clear stakes of, yes, we are hosed without Jesus. Amen and amen.